0: Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal! Hey, this is Stefan and you're listening to Metal Up Your
1: Podcast. I know for me personally that every note that I played on this record had a certain importance and impact. and it was coming from the heart more than any of the other records i've made with
0: Metallica.
1: this album to me really resonated what was going on in my
0: life
1: I mean, I don't even think. I know people feel on that. That's the magic of music. I really do believe that we were all playing from our
0: hearts.
1: There's a collaborative spirit in that alone already, and um, that's something that is a a sort of a magic ingredient that we have in 72 seasons.
2: Welcome to Metal Up Your Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Wells, here with a very special guest, not only a special guest, but a guest host, definitely (laughs) not Bradley, but Brad
3: Blazik. Welcome to the show, Brad. (laughs) Hey, What's going on? Are you Clinton? What is, I'm your, Clinton. What is your name? Yeah. Clinton. If you were to
2: peek at my birth certificate, it would say Clinton Moore Wells. But unlike you right, and right. unlike the coach for the Denver Nuggets, <laughs> I don't mind being called Clinton. But you have a visceral, there's something triggered in do. you that's visceral. If you're referred to mm-hmm. as, I won't even say it, the B-L-E-Y. Where does that right. come I, from?
3: I don't know. That's what I'm saying. I wonder if it's like... Uh, uh like maybe a, like a girl in kindergarten made fun of me and kept calling me that
2: well, I mean, if I wanted to invoke the great Sigmund Freud, um a lot of it probably comes down to your relationship with your mother, and so I don't know if you want to start mm-hmm. off the episode by exploring those things right, yes, um, I don't know how many of our listeners would like that, but we could also do that
3: in Jackie Brown when um I forget Melanie, she's like, Hey, Lewis, did you forget where we parked, Lewis?' And then he just takes out a gun and shoots her. Yeah.
2: You're talking about uh, the Bridget Fonda, Robert De Niro Bridget scene. Bridget Fonda, right. Where right. he finally goes nuts and just kills her at the end. It's- yeah,
3: I have that I have that same reaction. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, thank God we're on <laughs> Skype and uh, not in person. It is good to see you. I feel right. like I haven't yeah. seen
3: you in a while. I know, dude. I've been thinking about you. I, kn- I know you got home from uh, Europe, maybe not too long ago. And I was, I was like, man, I need to text him. And then I feel weird. Like, oh, well, you know. I don't know what to say. How do you, How do dudes text?
2: I love you, dude. I miss you. <laughs> <laughs> you can text me anytime. You know that. Well, I'm glad you're here. It is good to see you. I know that a lot of our listeners enjoy your, your flavor on the show. We are going to be breaking down the Stefan Shirazi, once again, the wonderful Stefan Shirazi So What interview with Rob Trujillo. I think there's a lot of interesting revelations. I always look at these interviews, and I've actually talked to Stefan about it. The thing is, for me to do these episodes and, and do them as good as I see them in my head or hear them in my head, I listen in to these, episodes, these interviews and I read them several times. And if you really read between the lines and watching how they answer certain things, watching how they're trying to be careful about what they say, you can, I believe, learn a lot about the inner workings of Metallica. And if that's something you're interested in, which I am interested in that, it's a fascinating window into their thing. Do you have that experience when you, when you read
3: these interviews? Definitely watching it especially on youtube watching rob answer and just picking up on little things about the inner workings of of the band and how they relate to each other and how they work together don't work together
2: you can see the ways where they try to be careful about how they answer and that can tell you a lot about maybe a certain pressure point and it's not all i'm not even saying it's bad i'm just saying when you're when you're a guy in a band and you're even though you've been there 20 years you're the newest guy And probably the most chill guy. And you know that these interviews are going to reach millions of fans. I mean, you're even to be asked simple questions about what it's like working with James Hetfield. I can sense a certain, like, there's a, um, you know, a responsibility that Rob has to just do right by his, you know, his guy, do right by the fans, do right by himself. And I find all that very fascinating. So we are going to break that down. I have clips, I have anecdotes. Uh, but we are going to do the normal housekeeping stuff. And some of this housekeeping stuff, I'm particularly interested to get your your opinion on. So first of all, in the news, Metallica Gatekeeper silenced by Metallica. This is from guitar.com, a website I've literally never been to until today. Thrash legends leap to the defense of a bagpipe playing fan, swiftly disarming a hater. The player, known as Allie the Piper, has covered tracks including Fade to Black, One, and Inner Sandman on her instrument, but has sadly received hate from online bullies... Uh, one hater posted in the comments section of one of her videos, bagpipes don't belong to Metallica. James would not approve. Which anyone reading that is going to feel that this person is an odious, immature shithead. But luckily, Metallica, like a superhero, swipes in and it says, however, in one swift takedown, Metallica themselves disarmed the gatekeeper, replying, this guy does not speak on our behalf. You're awesome.
3: I'm just like, fuck yeah, Metallica. Same. It's this. It's so cool. And it's like I mean like, um, I mean, I know there wasn't bagpipes in s and m, but bagpipes are in that kind of you know world, yeah. and they open the show with a long way to rock, AC-DC. a long way to rock, yeah, yeah, which is bagpipes
2: <laughs> you' I like your detective work dude just putting two and two together it doesn't matter if you like metal doesn't (laughs) like if you like yanni it doesn't matter if you're an alien yeah two plus two equals fucking four period that's what you're saying and i like it right bagpipes yeah the more people the more people are shamed by this kind of uh way that they deal with the gatekeeping stuff the better you know i don't think this is going to change that person's mind about bagpipes and metallica but it will probably shut their ass up next time they want to try to throw that poison dart in the world. Does the world yeah. need another poison dart?
3: I don't no. think so. No. Why even say it? it? You know, even if Metallica, like, if they didn't come out and defend this girl, like, why even say it?
2: Um, well, because this person's a shithead. I mean, the best you yeah. can say yeah. is that they're not really a shithead, but they have this thing that the internet does to you where it, it just se- tends to bring out the worst of your, you know, Everyone has hot takes or gut reactions that are probably not our best versions of ourselves. Yeah. The internet, the internet, almost like driving a car, like you get, you displace humanity just a little bit, whether you're wearing a mask, you're driving a car, you're typing from home, and just the worst instincts are given free reign. It's gross. So the best you can say about this person is they're a victim of how the internet dehumanizes everybody, but they're probably just a shithead. But there are many things that go through my head that I don't say out loud.
3: So exactly. That's what I'm saying. Why go online and make a comment? Like, I guess people don't realize like this Allie the Piper is a real person. Yeah. And she's going to read this. And there's something you probably know better than I do. But there's like something like primal about if you go online and you read one negative comment about yourself and you realize that like, oh, all of Metallica's fans are reading this comment. It's not just the one comment. Everyone is seeing you get bullied. So A, you're getting bullied, but then everyone's seeing you get bullied, which makes it worse. I, I just feel like there's there's some psychological thing about internet bullying.
2: Yeah, if you want to peel back the onion layer, I, I think they're also probably, I don't know, frustrated or disappointed in their own lives that they can't do things, they can't make things. So mm. I think there is a an, a subconscious will To keep people who are talented or who are courageous enough to express themselves creatively to tamp that down. So I think ultimately, if you were to ask that person, what's your real goal? And if they were really could even access that part of their mind, they would say, my real goal is to stop people from making things because it, you know, is a mirror for me and how I don't make things. That's what I think the truth is. And speaking of poison darts, we got your boy Mega Dave here in the news and he's got a (laughs) couple of things. So this is him talking about Kirk Hammett. It's from Metal Edge. These are friends at Metal Edge. He says, I've always kind of poked fun at Kirk, and unfairly so, the Megadeth frontman says. Conversation came up after Mustaine was asked if he had listened to Metallica's new album, 72 Seasons, to which Mustaine replied, I have not heard Metallica's latest record, but there was a time around 20 years ago when we were not being friendly towards each other when I couldn't listen to their music when it came on the radio, but none of that bothers me anymore, and it's not why I haven't heard the record, especially after the Big Four thing we did, And he says, I really think we should do that again. Regarding his feelings about Hammett soloing, Mustaine said with a laugh, it depends on which solos you're talking about. He continued, jokes aside, I've always kind of poked fun at Kirk, and unfairly so, as he never did anything to me. Again, this is all good so far. Whenever I felt singled out, picked on, or antagonized by James or Lars, it was really easy to pick on Kirk. But the truth is, Kirk did me an honor by trying to play my solos on those early songs. And it's like he kind of had to put in the like, well, he tried
3: right
2: he tried to play the solos
3: besides the word trying this is like this dude's turned over a new leaf yeah he's super positive and not just not being negative and not even being just um like middle of the road he's like actually praising kirk and admitting that he used to make fun of him and that it was it was easy
2: so okay so that's gonna lead us to the second thing and everyone has heard me go on about dave and i get it but He does come up in the news a lot, and I get it too because he's going to get asked about Metallica forever because it's interesting. And he honestly, you know, this is his bed; he has to lie in. He does usually say something kind of dumb and horrible that is easy to print in in news media. It's kind—he's kind of a walking gaff machine when it comes to Metallica.
3: Yeah, he can't—he can't not go hard when someone asks about Metallica. He can't not just be like, "Oh yeah, like I used to be in that band and." everything's cool he has to you know kind of build himself up by taking them down
2: it's kind of his life's work yeah. <laughs> i mean <laughs> yes. Death albums might even be number two um yeah and i get it it obviously his experience with metallica has obviously like lodged a deep trauma in mm-hmm. him and you know if i were him or i was his publicist i would say to these people do not ask me about metallica um, I mean, you can actually do that. Most journalists will—I mean, Steph and Shirazi will tell you—if a journalist tells you that something's off limits, you don't ask about it. You, that's a really good way to get, you know, thrown out of an interview. So, but I get it though. He hasn't made that provision in his interviews, and he's going to get asked about it. Everyone's like, "Why won't he? Why won't he leave it alone?" I give him a pass on that because he gets asked about it. Right. The problem is that when he gets asked about it it is just obviously so hard for him to land the the ship. Now, here's what's interesting about this next one. This was from Planet Radio. This is an interview he did for British Radio. And this is where you know the headline is, Dave accuses Metallica of trying to squash Megadeth in the early days. And I read the print of it, but I wanted to play the audio because the audio is a little different. So check this Mm. audio out and see what you think.
0: We've had adversity against us since the beginning because of Metallica. Funny thing about it is is that we're friends now. But, you know, what what happened happened and, you know, it's a public belief that there's some kind of beef between us and I really use As much as back in the day we talked about it from a negative point of view, I prefer to talk about it from a positive place now, you know, a place of forgiveness and of healing. Those guys uh, went through a lot of stuff themselves. I did too. It's uh, very well documented about all this and getting uh, professional help. So that, that's... Uh, Something I think is really wonderful. You've got two of the biggest bands in, in metal that, uh, started from the same place, had their growing pains, um, came to the realization that it was just a bunch of hard feelings and a bunch of, you know, hurt people and hurt people, hurt people. And, uh, now I, I wish them the very, very best. Um, and now it's all about just coming from a place of happiness. And I, and I think.
2: The tone changed for me when I heard that, and I honestly I went and listened to um the rest of that interview, which was pretty interesting. It was him choosing like some of his favorite songs. And even the one where he's picking on Kirk, was which was a guitar world interview, which I grew up reading Guitar World magazine. Most of what he had to say in that interview was really just about the guitars he's playing and his new record. And it did it did soften me up a little bit. I did feel a little softer hearing the way he's actually phrasing it. And then seeing that it's just easy clickbait for people, myself included. I get wrapped up in it, too. Do you have any thoughts hearing it versus oh, reading it in print?
3: Yeah, I read it earlier when you sent it to me. And now hearing it, I-, I get the same like warm, fuzzy feeling from Dave. Right. like I am blown away at how positive he is, in, especially in what we just listened to. See, because originally I saw the the title and I was like, "Oh, here we go! Dave's going to shit on Metallica, right? You know, for back in the day." And then he's like, I-, "I prefer to talk about it from a positive place now, a place of forgiveness and healing." That's Mustaine saying that, like, that's yeah. crazy to me. I've said this forever. Like, I love Megadeth, a certain era of their stuff, and I want to like Dave, but he makes it real fucking hard, yeah, to like him. Right. And then I read these two separate pieces and i'm just like wow like maybe maybe it's a little easier to to go back to liking him
2: yeah i mean i think having a brush with you know with death hopefully gives you a perspective as a human being you know yeah i mean he, he had a pretty rough scary go of it and you know when he got sick when he was diagnosed i think he was was it esophageal cancer or throat cancer
3: i or think mal- so um
2: you know i put a moratorium on the kind of making fun of dave thing. right right and because at the end of the day like i'm doing an entertainment podcast and trying to be funny he kind of makes it easy to poke at him right but when he got sick it's like well that's all human stuff and Mm -hmm. i wish him the best i think that i think that there are pockets of his music that for me kick ass it's obvious that even the stuff i don't get resonates with an audience yourself included Right. right so yeah i mean maybe his brush with all of that you know maybe landing on a new plateau so i wanted to bring that into the news today because it was a mustane bit but it was positive isn't that yeah.
3: nice it is it's very nice
2: all right number three in the news melvin's buzz osborne claims lulu is metallica's best album these are our friends at metal injection who got the scoop he says those guys got taken to task for lulu and i think it's their best record easily the weirdest one Metallica should be leading the way. They should be planting the flag in their own spot, making people rally around that. Don't let people tell you what to do. That's a terrible idea. It doesn't work because then you're assuming you know what they want. There's no way you can know that. All you can do is make music you like, and they obviously liked that thing with Lou Reed, and they're at a point now in their career that they could do whatever they want. They're playing stadiums. What's going to happen? They're going to go down to 10,000 seaters? I think they'd be okay. What do you think about the Melvin's front man saying Lulu's their best album?
3: (laughs) I mean... I, I don't know. I, that's, I get that's everything. a wild I,
2: statement. That's wild. Yeah, it,
3: it, it's. I mean, I guess he's trying to make a point, but it, it's just not hitting with me. Everything else he says, I get. Like, don't tell, let people tell you what to do, and dad, you know, you got to do. <laughs> yeah. You can't tell me I can't stay up, dad. Yeah, I'm this many. But to say that "Lulu" is their best record, like it, it just. I don't. Know. I mean,
2: maybe he hasn't heard any of their albums. That's the only explanation. Maybe he's never heard any of their other albums. Right. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Because I'll take Anger
2: over Lulu. Right. Any day. Oh
3: yeah, totally. Yeah. It's it's a weird. It's a it's an odd statement to make, but I really think it it was more in the spirit of what he's trying to make a point about. Right.
2: I just wish you know a little more nuance could have <laughs> solved that problem. You don't have to come out and hit everyone with a fucking sledgehammer and be like, "Well, this is their best album," and yeah. you know the reason why is because you shouldn't let people tell you what to do, right? You know, it's like, okay, good. Parents just don't understand. Their, yeah, their weirdest, shittiest albums their best album when they've made some like you know metal masterpieces and beyond metal, just rock masterpieces.
3: Yeah, yeah. and I'm in the camp that Lulu is not a Metallica album
2: anyway. Same. So yeah. All right. Well, interesting take, Buzz Osborne. I want to say thank you to some new patrons. We've got Sean Stangland, Chris KW, Simon Ingebrand, Chris Pierce, Sean Reynolds, and Carlo Cardoni. Thank you guys for jumping on the hobo train. Brad, it's a train full of hobos, but it's it's not a bad thing because you're not alone. And we all have the stick with the bandana tied. And we all have something in that bag. What's in your bag? Because you've been a supporter of the podcast for what, six years now?
3: Yeah, something like that. What's
2: in your hobo bag? What did you bring on the train?
3: I brought the the brand new Clint Wells going supernova vinyl. I don't know if you, oh, could, thank goodness. If you could see it back there. I, I, see was, it. I was listening to it to earlier after I right. listened to the, to the Rob interview. The
2: only problem is, first of all, you can't eat or drink that. Number two, <laughs> to fit That's it in just... the sack, you had to bend it and warp it in a way which makes oh. bringers it unplayable. When you get to your destination, which is Valhalla, by the way, which is where the train's eventually going to end. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's sweet that you brought that with you. I am glad to see it showed up. The Going Supernova vinyls are currently out in the wild being shipped to the Kickstarter. So thank you for helping support that. It's it's a pretty bitchin' cover, isn't it? I love the way it looks on vinyl.
3: It's your big, giant face.
2: It's just a big picture of my face. Yeah. How much more vein could I get?
3: <laughs> no, but I was, I was surprised that you signed it. I didn't realize it was going to be signed. That's, I, that, was a, that was a nice surprise when I opened it up.
2: Well, it went from being worth about $15 to about sixteen seventy five.
3: <laughs>
2: uh, the worst part of sending a bunch of vinyl is the post office vibe. Because mm. I go to the humble United States Postal Service, which is a government-run program. Have you ever seen anyone happy to be working at the United States Postal Service?
3: No, and my father worked there for years. So,
2: And i if you've anyone's read Post Office by Charles Bukowski, you get a pretty good idea about what the Los Angeles Postal Service is like. Yeah, it's, it's like a Terry Gilliam, Brazil, grayed out corporate, horrible room. Why they never put a little color or a little radio or like a TV in there? Like, I think if you put a small TV with like home shopping network, in the post office, I don't know, crime goes down by like 85%. Yeah. You know, like civil unrest just almost evaporates to nothing. If you just take these horrible government buildings we have to go to, like the DMV, the post office, and you just put a little color in there, put a little Guy Fieri's diners, drive-ins, and dives in there. Mm -hmm. Because I'll tell you what, Guy Fieri gets a lot of grief, and people who know me in my private life have heard me pontificate about this. But everyone likes to watch that show. You may pretend that you're above it. You may prefer Ina Gardner and the fucking uh, whatever, you know, your Bobby Flays and your Iron Chefs, but what will really unite America ultimately is going to be diners, drive-ins and dives, period. You heard it here first.
3: That dude is fun. Like, do you hate fun?
2: You hate fun? He's a family man. He's a great dad. During the pandemic, he donated millions to restaurants to keep them alive during a time when everyone was fucking terrified to go to restaurants, right? And you don't like him. Why? Because his hair, because you don't like his hair. Do is that what it's come <laughs> to? Not liking someone because of their haircut.
3: His dad jokes. Dad jokes are the, the best. I laugh out loud come at his
2: dad jokes. I'm your dad. I'm a dad. I love yeah. dad. I recently played a festival, a very cool hip festival full of a bunch of very cool hip musicians. And I found this one dude and he looked like a cool hip guy, kind of like me. But as soon as he started talking about how he had a daughter, who was like seven years old. I was like, you're a dad. I'm a dad. This is all I want to talk about. I don't care what instrument. I don't care about your gig or your bus or whatever the fuck. Let me tell you your daughter's name. Where do you guys go to school? How are you enjoying being a dad? How do you deal with it? Dads are the best. And so the dad energy from Guy makes me happy. And anyway, when you show up to a post office without Guy Fieri, without triple D in the corner and you have 50 records that they have to make the labels for, they're not liking you. They're not. They're not happy. Anyway, thank you to all the patrons who showed up. And thank you, Brad, for putting my new record in your hobo uh, bag. We do appreciate you guys. We're on all the socials. The most important social aspect of Metal Up Your Podcast, in my opinion. And I don't go there as often as I used to, but I do think it's a thriving community where you can meet a lot of like-minded people. A lot of people write into us and say, we don't have a lot of people to talk to about our love for Metallica, hard music, what have you. But we have a Discord and that's where it's basically a, a forum. It's a message board just for Metal Up Your Podcast. They don't talk only about Metal Up Your Podcast or even only Metallica. They're talking about you know recipes, cooking, other vinyl they're getting, meeting up at shows. You can find a link for that below in the description. You'll find all that. Easiest way to get a hold of us, as has been since day one, since old Samim faithfully clickety-clacked his way into our lives on New Year's Day of 2017, uh, is our email address, metalupyourpodcastshow at gmail.com. Brad and I are going to read a handful of these, see what's cracking with the community, and then we're going to burn down this interview, this wonderful Stefan Shirazi interview with Rob Trujillo. So let's go check out the email portal. Okay, first email from Hans Weston. Good day, sirs. How do? Do you know what good day how do
3: is from? It's a metallic song. Yeah. From... The load reload era. Continue. You're doing good so <laughs> far. <laughs> uh, I might get there. I, I, no, I don't. You know, I'm not a big load.
2: I era. know. I forgive you. It is from wasting my hate, which is from load.
3: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Which I do like that song. I'm not a true. You know, I was listening to. I think it was last week when you were talking to your new your new tour manager buddy. Yeah, Lee. Um, and you were asking him like the five questions that you asked somebody, right? If I, if I answered those questions, you'd be like, oh, this dude's a true.
2: Well, let's just do them real quick. Just give me the short answer, though. Okay. Uh, Cliff or Jason? Jason.
3: Well, then you're not a true already. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Man, I just... <laughs> <laughs> Strike one. I mean, next thing you're going to tell me, reload your favorite Metallica album. Jesus.
2: I know why it's Jason, though, because you're a justice guy. And even though right. you, even though you yeah. can't hear a single decibel of him on that album. Right. And, and you're also a big... Um, you're a big Garage Days Revisited guy, which would, of course, yes. have been Jason's first yeah. real recorded material of the band, and in which the bass is cranked loud as hell and sounds beautiful. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, those that EP is just amazing. You're known to wear a Crash Course in Brain Surgery shirt. I've seen you. I've, uh, <laughs> yes, you've probably worn it just to my house twenty times.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: All right, but the, the other questions though are: Where do you stand on load and reload? And you would probably say I'm not a big load reload
3: guy. Yeah, I'm not a big big fan of those albums but i don't hate i don't hate them and then
2: the, i think the third one is like what do you think about saint anger
3: yeah i don't i don't hate it like everyone else like i, I do enjoy some of that the uh drums the snare drum does not and has never bothered me
2: okay curious so. that's a curious statement because <laughs> aren't you a former drummer yes okay well well, again, we're just hobos on the train. The thing that bothers me about the people who defend it is when they say, well, it's a return to form. No, it is not. That album does <laughs> not sound like Kill 'Em All, guys.
3: My argument of that is it doesn't sound like anything in the 90s. It right. sounds like they were trying to go back and now they, they failed. It's raw, but it's very raw and it's very thrashy compared to the Black Album and Load and Reload. My thing is, like, when the Black Album came out, and then Till It Sleeps came out, I had the same reaction, like, I like this, but I guess this is Metallica now. It's not thrash. When St. Anger came out, I was like, oh, shit, like, they're trying. They're attempting to go back to the stuff that I love.
2: You must have shit a, an immaculate thrash rainbow doo-doo when you heard Death Magnetic. That must have been one of the happiest days of your life.
3: Yeah, that was like, okay, this is what they were trying to do with St. Anger. That, that that sounds weird because Death Magnetic does not sound like St. Anger. I'm just saying like
2: Yeah. Well, Death Magnetic was a return to Thrash Form. That's what you mean, right? Yeah. Death Magnetic yes. to me is like a sequel to Injustice for All. I think if you put Death yeah. Magnetic in nineteen if you if you dude, if you put Death Magnetic as the follow up to Puppets, we're talking masterpiece combo. Mm yeah you know what I'm saying, and I think that's a yeah. record that could that's what it could have come out at that time
3: i that's what I wanted the black album to be yeah I wanted that to be the next progression after justice after justice, yeah like again, like I don't hate the black album, and i I mean I can listen to it, I like all those songs, but they're not like the thrashing Metallica that I grew up and loved, yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's it's weird. I have this weird thing. Like, I I wish the Black Album was some other band, some other unknown band that came out and just kicked ass with those songs. That's what I
2: heard a lot, you know, at the time. I mean, my, my group of trues, well, we weren't trues, but my group of diehards, like for me with my age when we got hip to metallica was inner sandman black album right so for us no problemo inner sandman was like the coolest thing in the fucking world right if that came on the radio we're cranking it to 11 and then our very next step was binge and purge right because it had the live um black album stuff but that was that was the first time we heard seeking story whiplash creep harvester Mm -hmm. anything pre-black album we first heard it on Mexico City and San Diego and Seattle 89 and it was that black album era you know power yeah and so when it got to load and reload my guys mostly were bummed well we still mm. we still jammed it because we just loved them so much right but I did have my guys going being a little bummed about until it sleeps yeah uh, yeah and giving me the sauce in 96 i remember distinctly a friend of mine we were arguing about load and i remember a friend of mine did this very dramatic thing he goes hold on a second just hold on and he went and put the vhs sn of benjamin or whatever the benjamin purge was and creeping death is like one of the ones they open with and he just he was like and he just played creeping death and i was like dude i get it he's like no no and he made me just sit there for like six minutes and watch (laughs) creeping death and, you know, was he right or wrong? I don't know. It's a, it, it strikes me now as a charming argument. But you know what else? You yeah. know what else was going on at that time in 96, 97? And you're going to enjoy this, and so are our listeners who have the Venn diagram of Pearl Jam fans. Is my buddies who were big 10 fans and 10 and mm. versus fans that just liked the even flows, the goes, the animals. Yeah. They did uh, not like No Code yeah. or Yield. And I remember yeah. my friend looking at me. We were listening to Yield, and it was this one of the same guys who showed me creeping death as as exhibit A for why until it sleeps is just not up to par. And he, we were listening to no way on yield and it was the, Oh, let's call it an angel. And I remember he was just like, (laughs) listen to this dude. Let's call it an angel. What the hell is he talking about? This is horrible. (laughs) But there are some places that you can or can't go to with your favorite band. And I don't think being able to go there in that moment makes you a better fan or anything. Like the people who were able to go through the door into St. Anger world, I just couldn't follow him there. I don't even know why, really. Yeah. You know, it's like not liking onions or not liking pickles. I wish I liked them. My life would be a lot easier if I liked a goddamn pickle, but I don't. You like pickles?
3: Mm. Oh, I love
2: pickles. So your life's easier. You have it better than me. Do you like the cucumber? Or just, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're You don't like cu- cucumbers? No, I surely don't. Oh. Wow. We have still yet to read the first email. Here we go. Hans Weston writes in, Good day, sirs. How do? Loving the M72 Metal Tales. Thank you. Can't wait to see the band when they eventually make it back to New Zealand. It's been a long 12 years for us, which I I feel bummed for my friends in that part of the world. Enemirata has gained a lot of attention for being a long song that doesn't feel long. I agree. Enemirata wastes not a minute of time. Masterful songwriting. In my opinion, the success of this already classic Metallica song is due to how it does something new minute by minute. Whether it's lyrics, vocal delivery, guitar solos, riffs, drum fills, Inamorata is an adventure. It's a story. Aside from a welcome reprise of the chorus around eight minutes in, the song never goes backwards. It's not repetitive, no fat. The song is always doing something fresh. I hate to be overly, overly analytical, but this makes time go faster. The song reminds me of the Beatles track, Happiness is a Warm Gun, where every idea falls into the next and there is no repetition. But Hey Jude probably has more in common with Inamorata Never heard anyone complain about that being a long song either. It confuses me why Metallica would sneak a track like this onto the end of an album. Was it the last to be written? Maybe it wouldn't fit anywhere else on the album. Is this a sign of where their songwriting might be headed? If Metallica ever slowed down on the touring end, it would please me to no end to see them embrace the recording studio like never before and challenge themselves as songwriters. I love most of the new album, and with songs like Inamorata, they've proven they can still be world-class. Bravo. Hans Weston, Wellington, New Zealand, New Jersey. Okay, Brad, a few things to chew on here. What do you think of Inamorata? you into that
3: tune? I love it. Okay, same. I do. I really do. One of my problems with the album is the songs are so long. But, ironically, I, I think Inamorata is, is perfect. What he's saying here about it like it doesn't waste any time or any notes or anything. Like He's, he's totally right. Master!
2: Master! Hey, folks, this is Clint interrupting the episode briefly to let you know that at this point, Brad's audio, unfortunately, gets a little shitty. Uh, I am doing my best to clean it up, but I have spent almost seven hours on this episode today. It's currently 1237 a.m., and I am tie Um I am cleaning it up, though. With the tools I have available, and it will not be as bad as it could be, but it will not be as good as it just was. So, hope you are with us. It's a great episode. I'm having a lot of fun even editing it now. Just wanted to let you know if you notice a drop in the audio. Thanks for hanging in there with us, Master. Master. I agree also that the album feels a little long, but I do not get that feeling with this song. I love the way that Hans describes it as you know an adventure and a story. He asks. It confuses me why Metallica would sneak a track like this onto the end, which I think what he means is the song is so great. Why would it be at the end? But I think, I think that there was a sense about that song, and you can hear Lars talking about it in the Zane Lowe interview that me and Lee tackled last week, is there's a certain sort of gravitas that I think began to attach itself onto that song where it kind of felt like the ending song. I think it probably started to feel like a fixer or like an outlaw torn or like a Damage Ink or, you or know, whatever the big ending songs are. Some of the records have songs that end the record that aren't epic. To, like I don't think Struggle Within is like an epic album ender. I even think All Within My Hands is a better album ender than Struggle Within. I mean, obviously, Fixer, Outlaw Torn, I think Damage Ink is a great ender. Call of Cthulhu is a great ender. Metal Militia, I don't know.
3: Is Room of Mirrors the second to last song? It is, yeah. See, I, I wish they would have flip-flopped those songs. Mm, interesting. Um, but but at the same time, Inner Murata is a great outro for this album. But yeah. I, I I like when they do like the thrasher ending songs. I like right. Struggle Within as an ending song. Oh, you do? Okay, Damn Damaging and uh, Dire's Eve. Spit out the bone. Spit out the bone. So it would be cool. And Ruin Mirrors is a is a pretty thrashy song. It, it'd be a cool. It would fit along with. These other albums we just we just uh, mentioned.
2: Are you a Metal Militia fan? Yeah. You just like to rock, dude. Yeah. You just like <laughs> to turn it up and make yes. it fast.
3: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I like that about you. All right. Do you want to check out this I next did. email from Brian? Sure. Brian K. The subject. I like the subject. Peace sells, but who's Brian? <laughs> my first name is Brian. In 1991, at the age of 17, I had a huge stereo in my room. Four standing speakers, one in each corner. Dude, you want to hear a dude that likes to rock? It's it's Brian Brian. K.
2: Brian (laughs) likes to rock, dude. He's got (laughs) a lot of speakers with which to rock with. And I bet you Metal Militia came out of those speakers many times. Fuck
3: yeah. Uh, Four standing speakers, one in each corner, and four smaller satellite speakers on my entertainment center. My mom had no problem with me blasting my music, and I listened to everything from The Beatles and Rolling Stones to Metallica and Megadeth. I had a female friend over, and she was a metalhead. She actually introduced me to early Soundgarden, Slayer, and Megadeth. We were listening to Peace Cells intently, and when they sing "But Who's Brian," we both thought my mom was yelling up the stairs, "Brian!" She and I are still friends, and we both laugh to this day when we hear this song.
2: Love it, Peace Cells. Yeah. But who's Brian?
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean, that you know, honestly, in a not distant universe, that actually could be a Megadeth lyric. he had a concept album about a guy named brian all right thanks brian okay jeff kozak writes in he says brad blazik you're so right i scream i can feel it (laughs) as soon as someone says it in the wild all the time had to show my whole family why and what a laugh we had i had to dig deep for the hot summer nights episodes and wow that's peculiar anyway brad love you on the show that clint guy has issues lol love all you guys and paul love the fam love the laughter every week fucking and jeff koglack from grand prairie alberta canada new jersey so you i guess you told the story about uh when you hear i can feel it in the wild you got to give a shout out to the hot summer nights guy
3: yeah because it, co- it just comes up in in conversation that that line and in my head it's that's all i can hear is i can feel it <laughs> and it's it's funny because i i too showed this song to a few family members last weekend Uh, We were having, like, Father's Day cookout. Happy belated (laughs)
2: Father's Day, by the way. Yeah,
3: you too, man. Thank you. Um, It it, it just got the reaction that you would think. Like, first, they're like, what is this? And then they kind of, like, cock their head to the side, and they're looking at me like, is this real? Like, is this, like, someone making a joke? And I'm like, no, dude. This dude is for real. And then we just, like, laugh about it.
2: Yeah, you know, most people see it the way that you did and the way that Jeff Kozak obviously does. They see it as a a gift that can keep on giving if you share it with enough people. We did have a small group of people writing they're like, hey, it's not cool that you're making fun of this guy. And it's like, come on. Yeah. (laughs) Come on. What are we supposed to do? Yeah. I can
3: feel it. I can feel it. (laughs) I I would. uh, Man. I'm like half and half, like, I'd like to talk to that guy and see, you know, what he's up to, what he's doing these days. But I feel like he's the kind of guy that would, um, he wouldn't even think you're making fun of him. He'd be like appreciative that you're even listening to it. He'd be like, I could,
2: here's the thing, man, I could feel it.
3: (laughs) I felt it.
2: And when I felt it, I told him I can feel it. (laughs) we're like that's cool yeah. can you mind I'm like do you mind if i call you hot summer nights guy he's like well my name's Jarrett, but you can call me hot summer nights guy because i feel it i can feel it seems <laughs> <laughs> Jarrett, yeah. hot summer nights guy yeah thanks for writing in jeff all right joe zappy's got an email for us
3: good day sirs there's no question this week but i just want to thank you guys for the work you put in Thanks to your podcast, I've rekindled my love for Metallica, and the show has given me a greater appreciation for their work. Thank you for the awesome Cover Our World Blackened EPs. Thank you for Lunar Satan. Thank you for your solo projects. I'm thoroughly enjoying Clint's new Going Supernova album. Thank you for the laughing fits and church giggles. The laughter really helps get through the tough days that never end. I'm excited for all the awesome episodes to come. Keep up all the great work, as always. Joe Zappi walkertown north carolina new jersey
2: you know i'm looking through the last email that i'm about to read and i think we have a six for six new jersey writers this this uh this week which I always look to see who's going to put the new jersey joke in and this week it's uh, 100 sure? percent
3: uh,
2: am i wrong are you the guest host coming on here immediately uh, he, gonna yeah i
3: i gotta call you out because i did notice that brian k did not brian k didn't do it he did not peace Damn. out who's, who's brian k well,
2: he's too busy jamming who's been peace but who's
3: Brian. He's fucking rocking, dude. He's got those speakers on. He he was he was he he couldn't finish his email cuz he just had to get back to rocking.
2: He was rocking too hard. Yeah, cuz he has 800 speakers in his bedroom. His satellite speakers. Well, look, Brad, this is why we have you on cuz I said I made a boo-boo, you immediately yeah. dialed up the metal police vibe. You called me out on it. We can all move on knowing being in the light of God and knowing more than we knew before. So thank yeah. you for that. All right yeah and thank you uh, thank you Joe for all the kind words about cover our black and lunar Satan going supernova good grief thank you our cup runneth over thank you for the beautiful compliments it means a lot to us when you guys take the time to write in something nice about the show really does go a long way puts a little pep in our step all right last email Brett Mercer says Clinton Ethan and Paul good day another good day how do can I at least say that that's the second how do or are there three how (laughs) do's Uh, you are
3: you're you're correct
2: I think to just run everything by blazy now. Uh, he says, "Longtime time listener of the show. Happy to say I finally got off my ASS. I'm going to spell it for the kids out there. And became a Patreon supporter. He says, sorry it took so long. And to that I say just quickly here at the top, we don't care how long it takes. We're just glad to have you on the ride. Brad will share his hobo bag of a warped and bent Going Supernova album with you anytime you want. He says, my quick story. I've been a Metallica fan since I was six. The first song my older brother played for me was Damage, Inc., And I was instantly hooked. He says, I have been fortunate to attend many concerts, but no show compares to seeing the boys live. My first Metallica concert was back in 2004 in St. Louis with my older brother. I had just turned 12. I will never forget the rumbling of anticipation in the building when ecstasy hit, followed by the blackened intro tape. He says, I was able to see the boys again in 2008 during the Death Magnetic Tour. And now, 19 years later, after my first Metallica show, my brother and I will be seeing the boys again in St. Louis in November, which I think is the show that I'm going to be able to go to. Are you going to a U.S. show?
3: Yes, I'm going to St. Louis. Okay,
2: maybe we can go together and relive our St. Louis. Yes, dude. You and I, in 2017, rode the rail yes. in the Snake Pit in 2017 on the on the World Wire Tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, when James came out, I almost cried. I caught one of his pics and gave it to you because I'm a, yes. I'm an amazing person.
3: Is that pick in a place of honor now? Yeah, it's uh, framed with a picture that I took of them. Like uh doing, uh, look what's what I have right called?
2: here.
3: Yeah, yeah, I've got that too.
2: I have the poster, which is like one of the coolest posters of the whole tour. It is a,
3: that is a co- killer poster.
2: It's the two skeletons in the coffin, like the Death Magnetic Coffin. Then I have my Snake Pit pass that you gave me. Yeah, in the bottom, just yeah, so you know, it's in a place of honor.
3: By the way, that's me and you on there, <laughs> just forever <laughs> entwined.
2: Yeah, um, yes. I got to tell you this too because you know you gave me this great Michael Jordan poster. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure you remember it, uh, where yeah. he's doing the slam dunk kind of, it looks like he's flying and yeah. I had it, I, I replaced it with, I replaced it with my cassette tapes in the old right. studio. I want you to know in my new studio, you can't see it now, but I have it in a place of honor behind the couch.
3: Oh, thank you. So that's awesome. Um, yeah. I, I've got a picture of them like doing, what do you call it? Not encore. Like they're all standing there and like bowing. What is that called? <laughs> uh, I, is, I don't know. Is there a word pers- for that? Anyway, taking uh, yeah. a bow. Yes, <laughs> saying goodbye. Isn't there a word for that when you when you when take they a bow? Like, they, I guess
2: a word I, for I what when you're saying bye.
3: Like every band does this at the end of the night, they all like get together and put their har- arms around each other, and then they'll like kind of bow and take like, a bow. wave.
2: Yeah, I mean I don't know salutations off Wiedersehen? I, I guess
3: okay. Look, I, I don't I don't know.
2: What do you call it when you take the bottle and you hit the? You hit the ship before it goes. Uh,
3: is that what you're saying? That's christening. <laughs> uh, that's christening. christening. Also yeah.
2: baptizing babies, I think, is christening yes. also.
3: Yeah. I think I was baptized with a bottle <laughs> over the head, too. <laughs>
2: well, that's, I don't that know. explains. It might have been those raw noodles you used to eat when you were a kid. <laughs> I want to let everybody out in Metal Gear Podcast Land know that Brad occasionally, Latchkey Kid, ate raw spaghetti noodles. Yes. Yeah. And wait, what's the other weird thing that you ate when you were a kid?
3: <laughs> oh well, which one? Uh,
2: was it baking powder?
3: Uh, <laughs> flour? <laughs> just straight up, fl- like just straight up flour.
2: <laughs> Handfuls of flour.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, spoonfuls of flour. Dude, <laughs> our bus
2: driver. People will have heard this episode. We had a bus driver named Ringo, and we actually had him on the episode. We just got Ringo back as our bus driver. He's going to be our driver for the rest of the year, which isn't oh, cool. super common, you know? And, dude, all he eats is fucking boiled eggs and huge blocks of cheese. <laughs> oh, my God.
3: <laughs> well, dude, one time, uh, you know, I'm not the slimmest guy in the world, and that's been that way forever. You are looking my- good, though. Oh, oh thanks. Um, my dad like try to get me on a diet, like just eat better. And, and this is, you just know, eat handfuls of
2: flour. You'll be, you'll be well,
3: <laughs> <fine>. <laughs> I was off the flour by then, but <laughs> I looked in the fridge and there's like, you know, a pound of mozzarella cheese, like a block of mozzarella cheese. Uh-huh. And I'm like, well, that's, that's gotta be healthy. Right. So I just start chowing down. <laughs> it's on gotta it. be healthy. <laughs> so my dad comes in and I'm like, cheese is healthy. Right. and he he just he had the same reaction that you had
2: (laughs) but you know why i laugh though because dude i am the same way i grew up at a time where the fucking food pyramid was seen as the like pinnacle of like health education for food Mm -hmm. guess what's at the bottom of the food pyramid bread (laughs) and and i was taught that the bigger the chunks of the pyramid, the more important they are in terms of health. So I just used right. to eat l- a fucking whole loaf of bread because I was like, look, yeah. I'm finally be- I'm being healthy. And dude, yeah. when I was growing up, we had we had the blocks of cheese in our fridge too. And I would just walk by the fridge and just take a chunk out. There's always teeth marks in the fucking cheese. Like when I hear you about the, fl- the baking or the flour, the flour or whatever, like I never quite did that, but I definitely yeah. did whatever my versions of it were. Yeah. And Johnny Sword, shout out to our friend Johnny, he did a, um, an episode and he talked about how his version of that was he, he would eat raw sausage from the fridge. He would just Ooh. like take chunks out of the raw sausage. Oh, no.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's amazing we're still alive. Yeah. All right. Brett yeah. goes on to say. I stumbled across the podcast back in 2019 while working through an idea a co worker and I had. Every year, to coincide with March Madness, we randomize every single studio album song the boys have released into a bracket, listen to each song uh, while enjoying some black and whiskey, and discuss which song should advance to the next round. This year's final four Creep, Sleeps, Damage, and One. Creep took it this year. It always sparked an amusing, at times heated conversation. You had my buddy who hated everything post justice, like Brad Malay, like. And myself, being a 90s kid with Load Reload S&M holding a special place in my heart, he says, sorry, Trues, but Load and Reload are both towards the top of my album list. Lightning, number one. I have learned this, Brad. So I have Lightning as number one for me, even though I will, I'm will i going to go down in history, I believe, as like maybe one of the greatest fans of Load and Reload of all time, at least right. anyone who spoke into a microphone that lots of people heard. But Lightning's my number one, which I feel like gives me cred and legitimacy. Because oh, it's like, do, I, huh? it's, it well, it's not that... <laughs> <laughs> well hold on have another have another handful of flour before you weigh in but it, well it's true you know that lighten my favorite because it has I all my I favorite do. songs on it but yeah. it just lets everybody know that like look i'm not just a contrarian i'm not fucking buzz osborne saying lulu's the best thing metallica's ever done
3: yeah well what is the opposite of it are there opposite of truths like people that don't listen to the first four albums no See, that's what's that's what's cool about you people is like you like you like all of it
2: well, because it's on un- who, who could deny Master of Puppets? Right. Exactly. I mean, <clears throat> the thing is too that I think it's lost sometimes in this conversation. And I, I, I bet Brett's like this too, even though he says he's a load reload S&M guy. That's me. But when I went, here's what was so great about getting into Metallic in the nineties is that as I went back, mind continuously blown. Like you, you got to imagine if I thought Fuel was cool, dude, when I heard Master of Puppets, the song. It blew my fucking mind. Yeah, yeah. When I heard Fade to Black, mind blown. Cre- that's why I, I like Lightning, because Lightning just has so many mind blowers. Five Fire Fire is my favorite uh, starter thrash song. I like it. I prefer it over Battery. I prefer it over uh, Hit the Lights. I prefer it over That Was Just Your Life. I prefer it. Oh, I don't know if I prefer it over Black, Blacking, but yeah. but it's close, but it's close. Ride the Lightning is my favorite title track song, even over Puppets. And then you got Bell's Fade to Black, which is my favorite ballad. Um, I don't think it's their best ballad. I think the best ballad's one, but I think Fade's my favorite. Creeping Death, what's there's almost nothing better than Creep. Cthulhu's my favorite instrumental. Very close second To Live Is To Die. I'm a big To Live Is To Die fan. So for me, going back was just a mind blower, but I never went back and was like, oh, <clears throat> because Puppets is such a cool different thing, Fuel sucks. I started from a point of like, Inner Sandman and Fuel are awesome. But I can see why, if you got hip to puppets first, I can see why bleeding me would be tough, right? I, I see. It. I
3: think that's the difference between me and a true. Is like the trues they can't. I like for me, I like I don't blame you for finding Metallica in the '90s because you're you're younger. Yeah, you know what I mean. But like for me, I found them when I heard justice and I listened to those first four albums and garage days until 1991. So I had like four years of just listening to the four greatest thrash albums ever.
2: Wait, but you, got so, you, you found them on justice, right? Yes. So that's 88. Right. Yeah, so three, three years. We're,
3: we're, yeah. Yeah. So we're splitting hairs. It, what I'm yeah. saying is like you, you, you listen to the black album and you're blown away, which yeah. is fine. And then you heard that other stuff, but like, man, that first album of pretty much—I kind of have that theory. Like, the first album that you lock onto, pretty much with any band, that's your favorite album. I'm sure Mm -hmm. there's some outliers, but for me, pretty much every band that I love, that first album is the album for me—the first album I heard of that band.
2: Here's the thing about Trues. Here's the thing about Trues. Like, they're dummies but they're products of their age and time and the these are the guys that are like at ruthie's Inn, and they're watching the spastic children they know metallica and then they're watching james put braids in his hair and play drums and everyone's drunk and it just felt like their special group and they felt this allegiance to metallica they would turn their backs and flip off the other bands they're still at ruthie's to this day uh geriatric in wheelchairs they never grew up you know but i forgive them for when they were kids They just never grew up. And there isn't a version of the nineties guys because Metallica is too good. I don't know if I can say this, Brad. I think if you're a child of the nineties, I think that because of MTV, you were more open. I think you were, because if you were, if you were a kid, if you were a kid and you liked music and you were raised by MTV, and MTV debuted in 83, but it didn't become the power that it was to like 86, 87, and then it didn't get shitty until like 95. So if you were in that window, which I was 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and then ding, 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 13, or you're seeing Inner Sandman next to Living on a Prayer, next to uh, Living on the Edge, next to Prince, next to Madonna, next to Snoop Dogg. And I, I just think you're you have more of a melting pot infrastructure, in my opinion. I might be wrong. I think in the eighties, it was a little more tribal. It was like there wasn't as much. Like in the eighties, what probably ruled the day more was like the shirt you were wearing in high school, you know, the skater kids you hung out with, like your, your gang and not gang like capital G gang, but like your tribe, your people, that was your identity. So for Metallica to cut their hair or wear guy liner or for Kirk and Lars to kiss for press to annoy James or for them to slow down and play eight minute. You know, stoner rock songs. It just fucked with your identity. That's all it is. Okay, finishing the scene. Is this? This is a *Tangent City* episode, by the way.
3: Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah.
2: Actually, you know what? We talk, we've talked about Metallica way more than *Tangent City* episodes. This is a Metallica episode. Anyways, wanted to write in the show uh, and show some love and appreciation for the Melry Podcast family's two favorite professional musicians. I didn't say it. Thank you both for dedicating your time and energy to entertain and cultivate a platform for us fans to listen and discuss the band we all love. The show has been a bright spot on many mundane Monday morning commutes into work. So thank you, thank you, thank you. That's like Sally sells
3: shells. (laughs) Yeah, many mundane Monday. Damn, many mundane Monday morning commutes.
2: Many mundane Monday morning commutes. Yeah, there's a lot of alliteration and then commutes is almost like a slingshotted mm-hmm. M in there M's too. And
3: M's and N's and N's and D's. And-
2: Are we doing a Dr. Seuss bit, right? <laughs> okay, so thank you, thank you, thank you. We all greatly appreciate your hard work and dedication. Look forward to many more episodes in the future. Hope to catch you at the St. Louis Show in November. you would catch me in blazy blaze, I think. Good day, Sirs. he says. Peace and love. Brett Mercer from Shadyside, Maryland, New Jersey. P.S. Clint, congrats on going supernova. It kicks ass. Thank you, babies, for writing in. Thank you, Brad, for helping me through the housekeeping portion of the show. We're going to let you hear a quick commercial. We're going to take a quick pee-pee break, as it were, spiritually speaking. And then we're going to burn down this Stefan Shirazi interview. Hey, everyone. Clint and Ethan here, and we want to tell you about a little thing called Patreon. Patreon is an easy and interactive way to support the people who make the things that you love. For as little as five bucks a
1: month, you can ensure that Metal Up Your Podcast can continue to grow in quality and content. That's equivalent to a cup of coffee or a beer once a month.
2: Not only is it easy and affordable, but we've made it a priority since day one to give back to our Patreon community. We've given away deluxe box sets, rare vinyl, black and whiskey, concert tickets to S Two and Slain Castle, all four of our Cover Our World Black and EPs, twenty-six quarantine covers, and Lunar Satan demos.
1: Invitations to exclusive Zoom happy hours, the ability to ask our guests like Jay Weinberg of Slipknot, Lizzie Hale, and members of the Metallica crew your very own questions,
2: and eligibility for our Metal Tales
1: series, where you can be a guest on Metal
2: Up Your Podcast and tell us all about a notable Metallica show you've been to.
1: Subscribe to Patreon today and immediately get access to years' worth of bonus content.
2: Thank you for supporting the people who make the things that you love. Peace. Adios.
3: I can't talk about it anymore. It's giving me a headache. Here, take two of these.
2: Ah, new print. Little. Yellow. Different. All right, well, let's jump right into this. I think that when you think about Metallica interviews, we all want to hear from James first, it seems like, right? He seems like the guy that has the most juice, especially after an album like 72 Seasons, which seems to be very emotionally charged lyrically. I'm not saying this is a rule. I'm just saying for most people. Then it'd probably be Lars, then probably Kirk and Rob would probably be the guy that you want to hear from but if you had to choose an order, right? And yet I think this is one of the most fascinating Metallica interviews that I've heard in a
3: while. Uh yeah, definitely very interesting. He's not as intense as Jason, but he's definitely a smart, you know, articulate dude for being the bass player in a metal band.
2: I'm actually glad you mentioned that. This is kind of a weird thing for me to say, because I'm a Jason guy, have been forever. And a lot of it has to do with when and where I was born. Lately, as I've grown older and become a dad and all this stuff and just life, you know, Jason's intensity kind of wears me out now. Yeah,
3: I d- totally, I'm right there with you.
2: Like, what do you think that is? It's that same intensity that made me love him so much for his 14 years in the band. You know, like the first in, last out, he's going to give everything. and. What I like about seeing interviews with him now is like he's just that guy. That's who he is. And I respect that about him. But the older I've gotten, the more I'm like, I can see how that's hard to be around. And like the Kirk, Rob, kind of more neutralized energy. It just, I don't know. I think it makes more and more sense to me why he's not in the band anymore. I think what I used to feel like even at the beginning of this podcast was Jason was this really special thing, which he was, but I, and I loved Rob, but I think I would have said When the podcast started, how do we get Jason back in here? And now I just don't feel like it would work.
3: It's kind of like, I mean, (laughs) how do I say this without sounding like a dick? Like they don't need a Jason in the band. What do you mean? Like it's too many cooks in the kitchen. I feel like when you listen to these interviews now with Jason and how intense he is, they already have a James and a Lars So to bring in a third dude that's that super intense, it's too much. And I I agree. I I I think I think to answer your question of why maybe you feel this way about him now, um, because I get where you're coming from. And I think for me, it's like he's super intense for like an hour, hour and a half on a podcast. In the '90s, we would see him be super intense at shows. And maybe in a two-minute MTV news clip, but man, now you're getting to hear him for an hour and a half. Be that super intense, and it's just it's, who he it's is. It's too much. It's yeah. too much. Yeah. And you never got that before. You would just get a, like a quick clip of it. And be like, oh, that was he's killer. You know. But now it's like it wears on you as you listen and listen to these interviews.
2: And I think about it in terms of an, and it doesn't even matter that I play music. I think just in terms of like a coworker. Like imagine a coworker. You know, because I know that I don't know if you still do it this way, but I know for you know a lot of your work until recently, you had to be in a, a car with someone all day, working with someone to deliver stuff. So, like, if that person was like a really intense personality, even if they what was kind of great about them is what was intense about them, that's just a lot to work with. Yeah, yeah. And to juxtapose that, to start this interview, there's you know there's always these little preambles. And I like Stefan's preamble about this. He says that Rob's a great guy. What does that mean? What do those words mean when we use them respect to someone? Uh, He says, here's what it means in this case. Rob Trujillo has a warm, generous, and very human spirit, unflappably positive, even if he isn't necessarily in top form on a given day. He's friendly and inclusive. He's one of the most selfless musicians you could wish to meet. He's a little goofy at times, and he can be a whole heap of fun. A confirmed collaborator in all projects he's involved with he answers his texts in a timely fashion he says there that's why he's a great guy quote unquote a great guy among several other elements i've not mentioned that rob trujillo is such a pure musician's musician a man of many talents a writer of increasing repute the sort of creative force which is hard to find in all those nuances only adds to the whole true tale it should surprise no one reading this that Trujillo was the first step up and speak about 72 seasons It should further surprise no one that Trujillo didn't settle back into PR speak. Instead, he offered a detailed breakdown of how he dealt with all matters of the world and creativity in a pandemic and how he saw the journey into 72 seasons being created. I'll let the conversation speak for itself, but allow me one more time to say that Rob Trujillo is a great guy. Um, We're going to get into this with the clips, but I think one of the reasons Rob may have been eager to talk about the process is because what we're going to find out is that he was Kind of the one that started the process.
3: The thing about not settling into PR speak. When you watch the YouTube video, it's probably a, a way more apparent. Yes, you can see him like he'll he'll take a second, and you can see him like thinking of an answer, which is the opposite of PR speak. Like those those answers are right on the top of your head, and sometimes they're not even answering the question, but they're just like reading these robo- robotic answers.
2: Or they've been coached in a certain way. or Right,
3: right. Yeah. And he, he does not do that.
2: Well, so the first thing that they talk about is the tuning room. And the tuning room is where these songs are basically born. He will go on to talk about how there might be a riff from you know, Salt Lake City, and the, even the, the working title for that riff is called SLC or something. But he talks about how the tuning room is really where is the birthing place for a lot of the ideas that end up becoming their albums.
1: Our tuning room the jam room is a very special place it's always been a place where you can find you know serenity and kind of a peaceful environment with your instrument at a location that is just full of a lot of enthusiastic fans which is great and crew and everything that goes into a metallica show but you know as a as a member of metallica that you can go in that room and you can work on songs maybe there's some songs you're going to be playing that week that you haven't um, had time to take in and and rehearse and practice on so you can really really spend time getting into the track you know before you actually take it to the stage and then of course eventually we all get together about 20 minutes before and we loosen up we prepare the jam room also serves as a creative environment for new ideas and seriously with someone like James he's just like turning a knob and he's coming up with a great idea you know Um, it had been decided probably a long time ago that we should have equipment to pick up some of these ideas as they happen spontaneously the magic of what's coming into us at the moment is very very important and valuable because that's what ultimately usually becomes great metallica songs in this era of metallica so we have a creative environment so we can jam on some new ideas or come up with something special usually the title or the working titles are synonymous with the city that we would be playing as well which is pretty interesting because you'll always know where that idea came from
2: i remember there was one i think for it was either for Death Magnetic or Hardwire that was called like Chi-Town, obviously Chicago. But I love the idea of tuning room as a safe place to go to work on whatever the deep cut slot's going to be. But then also, if there's not that much work to do, meaning we really need to work out the bridge to Holier Than Thou because we only play it every two weeks. If they're feeling pretty good, then it becomes a space where they can actually start being creative. And then you're starting to get nuggets of what will become the next album
3: yeah the fact that they have like it's set up to record like everything and anything right because that gives them the opportunity to play something and be like oh wait a second like play that again you know like we have it recorded so we know we can work on that certain riff or whatever it is certain idea
2: yeah, Rob's basically giving us like a map of how this is really done, like how the sausage is really made. And we get to see it, you know, they showed us the videos. There's three hours worth of videos on the making of Death Magnetic. And I've, I mean, shit. <sighs> Brad, I've probably watched that like 10 times. I don't
3: think I've seen, I've seen the hardwired one, but I don't think I've watched the Death Magnetic one.
2: If you look it up, like making of, just, it's called making of Death Magnetic. And what some, you know, blessed soul did is they just put them all together. Cause the, cause the hardwired ones, they just basically put out individual videos of like, you know, they would show you the working title, whatever it was called. And then they would show you piece by piece how they get to, and usually it ends with James's vocals. And then you get moth in the flame or dream no more or whatever. Um, the one with the making of death magnetic is a little more raw than that. And it's a little, it's longer, it's like more intense. And, um, it's just fascinating to see the genesis of how that starts. So next Rob talks about fascinatingly the, how the pandemic plays into it, which I've, I always kind of feel like, oh, a pandemic record. Everyone, of course, artist types are going to be locked up in a studio. And of course, they're going to try to make something. I just always hoped it wouldn't be such a blatant, like, we're in a pandemic and life's scary. You know, it's like, how do you fold something like the pandemic into just your normal creativity? I think that's one of the problems for me with St. Anger. And I'm not disparaging sobriety. Some of my closest friends are sober people. And if they hadn't been sober, they wouldn't be alive. But I think one of the problems with me with St. Anger, lyrically, is that it's so raw about that material. I think what I look for more in that material is it being sort of folded into their normal thing. So this is fascinating. This is Rob talking about the pandemic, the uncertainty surrounding you know, being in lockdown.
1: Everybody's going to have their own story and what they went through. My version is going to be different than somebody else's. But I was actually just coming back from performing with Kirk on the East Coast. We were playing a wedding band show. We were having a great time planned covers. And then we arrived back in California and literally the next day, everything shut down for a good year. So we sort of had, I mean, I guess a festive experience right before lockdown. Not a lot of people got to have that. And then given where I live and my mindset, whenever things start to get too crazy, it's nice to have music to be able to take you away from the madness we live in the mountains so to be able to go on a hike or just to kind of find a bit of therapy so i was in that mode i was coming from music and um to get home and everything's turning into madness and at that point i try to find a place where i can get my head together and climb a mountain or whatever just to kind of figure out what the next step's gonna be, because it was just so much uncertainty. With that, you know, I just turned on the creativity once again. You know, I picked up the acoustic guitar, I just started playing uh, more and writing more and went that direction. I can honestly say the Trujillo family is extremely creative, and we take a lot of pride and, and energy into channeling positive energy through music or through art all that stuff helps and you need that stuff when things aren't stable and you've got to find a place to to just sort of release the frustration and you know and all that kind of energy and one of the first things we did as a family because we live where we live we went on a hike you know to try and feel like things are going to be okay
2: well, first of all, I love that he's emphasizing getting outside just for mental health stuff. That's great advice. I also like that you know if you follow his wife Chloe on social medias, she's always making stuff, whether it's like fashion stuff or actual art. She's been making like records and singles. obviously, his son is a already an accomplished musician, has his own band, is on tour. but it's that kind of stuff that you expect from creative people right during a pandemic instead of just developing a you know. A substance abuse problem it's like how do we get to work and make stuff
3: yeah it was it's real interesting hearing him talk about just his family and his son and right. it comes up a lot in this whole interview his family and his family and the metallica family and you know um his son engineering for him and i think he says at one point that Lars's son was engineering for him and the daughter was filming Daughter was a yeah filming so that was that's pretty cool like you know, again, you think of these like rock stars and they're just doing rock star shit. He's talking about going on a hike with his kids, with his family. You know, to me,
2: that is rock star shit. To me, that's why I mentioned to you earlier that the guy that I gravitated towards at this big festival full of a bunch of country music, rock star muckety mucks was a guy that would just immediately started telling me about his daughter. And I think he might've expected me to be more of a, um, you know, reputation preceded me rock guy. But as soon as we started talking about our kids, I was like, we just pulled away from all that, you know, and we're going to hear from about it later, but Rob talks about the family aspect of it out of necessity because they were all at home and they all had to have their home studios sort of built up. And Lars has got his sons who are also musically very adept engineering for him and setting up microphones and running the audio. And there's an interesting point where Stefan is asking uh, Rob about the uncertainty also surrounding james being in rehab and this is kind of i mean rob kind of dances around it in a respectful way you got to be respectful of your friend who's going through shit so here's him talking a little bit about james but a little more about lockdown stuff if
1: you look at it from a healthy perspective of where you need to be in your head how you approach stress or how you approach that sort of uncertainty that can sort of derail you know your spirit really i i tried to think of things in more of a positive light. And we were communicating with James at the time, but also we were dealing with this other situation um, with the pandemic. So there was a lot of things coming in at once, praying for James to uh, heal and grow and uh, go on this journey that he needed. I had a lot of communication with Kirk, a lot of communication with Lars as well. And even then, it was sort of different types of communication because Lars and Kirk are very different individuals. And I always believe that your friends need certain types of attention. And if I can be a great friend to that friend and cater to, when I say their needs, I mean from a spiritual place or a motivational place, you know, how can I help? At the same time, we've all got our families. We've got to make sure they're okay, too. So there's a lot of things going on there.
2: See, okay, you can almost even sum up Rob's entire ethos with the band, which is how can I help? He talked about this a little later, but like, okay, do you need me to write more for this album? Maybe not. Maybe, you know, in a situation like Hardwired, James and Lars are going to take care of most of it. Okay, do you need me to check on you? you need me to just be in the studio? Do you need me to kind of be out of your hair sometimes like you know that's a dynamic that i have with morgan that i think is important is when she needs me like off the stage as a band leader as a friend as a confidant i'm there i'm you know i'm gonna listen i'm gonna help hopefully be able to solve problems but there's a big part of the dynamic of morgan and i where i'm just kind of not up her ass i'm available i'm around but i'm not you know i'm waiting to see if she needs anything if not cool you know what i mean and that's part of Rob's secret sauce, I think.
3: Yeah, dude, he's 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 very much the opposite of Jason. You know, he's like you listen to these answers and he is so chill, you know. And like you said, he's um he's just trying to find a way to see where he fits in. And it's not even that to fit into the band. He just wants to know his place. Like you said, to help these dudes, to help them get where they're going. You know, it's almost like, I don't know. I I don't know if I'm saying this right, but it's almost like he's not a part of the band. He's just there to because they need someone to play bass. Does that sound crazy or like, am I saying it wrong? No, I
2: think what you're tapping into, it's hard to, it's hard to, it's, well, it's a weird thing to say because he's been in the band longer than any other bass player but here's the thing is he when he came into the band it wasn't just some band in fucking southern california it was metallica and i think even jason had it and it's what fucked jason's whole thing up and that was in 1988 or 87 actually what fall of 86 and but they were just too young to understand it and deal with it but even by then even for Jason to come in to what they had already accomplished with Master of Puppets, and and to have a bass player like Cliff, it's almost like no one ever replaced Cliff. And what we saw through the '90s was like almost a distraction from that. And then I feel like when Rob finally came in, he tells that story about being at, at one of the Faith No More guys' houses, Jim Martin, one of the or Mike Borden, one of those guys, and there was a poster of Cliff and. He sort of said a prayer to the poster. He said, I'm not going to let you down. You know, if I get the gig, I'm not going to let you down. And I think what Rob understood that no one could understand in Jason's 14 years was that, yeah, you're not going to, you're not replacing Cliff. You're standing in the gap. And if you finally realize that, then yeah, your posture is going to be, how can I help? It's weird to say that because Rob's been in the band for 20 years. He has a co-write on every song on Death Magnetic. Now, I think, I think that was more symbolic, but I don't think he has the creative power of Jason. So Jason has all this creativity. Jason has all these songs. And when they wouldn't take his songs seriously, that caused a a rupture or, you know, it, it was a fissure that never healed. And then it culminated in him leaving because he needed to do Echo Brain or whatever. I think Rob is creative. I think Rob makes a lot of stuff, but I don't think Rob has a lot of ego wrapped up in he even says later we're going to hear it like i've turned in a lot of riffs i don't even think they listen to which is fine
3: <laughs> yeah that was sad when he it said is kind that. of sad I, you know
2: yeah it is kind of sad but
3: i mean at the end of the day metallica is james and lars and that's just that's that's all there is to i it. think you
2: could even put kirk in that like i think if kirk was gone if kirk was gone i think some problems in the band get solved some but I think he is part of the sauce for me. I think if you get a mercenary type hired gun, I, 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 Kirk's kind of part of the, the foundational fabric for me.
3: Yeah. But it just feels like the Metallica is Lars and James. Now I see what you're saying about Kirk being there, but even Kirk is like uh, kind of on the outside.
2: He, he's deferential.
3: And especially on this, on this album, on this album hasn't he said like i just recorded a bunch of solos and sent them to lars i don't even know what they put on there like i just told them take what you want like to me that doesn't feel like and 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 i might be misinterpreting that as someone who's never been like really in a band
2: he's more involved creatively than he was with hardwired hardwired the only outside ulrich hetfield co-write is man unkind and that's only because rob did this little you know, thing <laughs> yeah, that doesn't yeah. really make any sense to me. Kirk has six co writes on this album. There's, there's six, at least six songs where his riffs made it into the stew. But in terms of solos, you're exactly right. Yeah. In terms of solos, I mean, we can see it. They've published this on the internet. He just improvises 25 times and Lars and Greg piece it together. If I were friends with Greg, what I would encourage Greg to do in the future is, okay, do the solos that way. Have him just shoot from the hip 25 times instead of taking the material home and writing, which is I think his masterpiece pinnacle album for that is Injustice for All, where he was like composing very thoughtful solos. There's even a story about how he asked the band to go back in the studio because he wanted to redo one of the solos on one and it cost the band like $20,000 and they were pissing him. And he was like, fuck it, we're going to pay the money for me to redo this because I went out and worked out another thing that's right, you know? And now it's the one solo I think is like top 10 for him. It's like a crowning lead guitar achievement, but they don't do that anymore for whatever reason. You know, he has arthritis or he's, who knows why? It doesn't matter. They just don't do it that way. So now he does 30 takes. They try to capture inspiration. They try, you know, I've seen Greg produce that like, hey, that thing you did there is cool on the next take, lean into that. And then... Kirk and Greg make a compilation of the best. They even go bar by bar. What I would say that they should do, which is clear to me they don't do, is once they comp that solo, like they take the solo from his 30 takes, I would then tell Kirk, go home and learn this solo. It's your solo. We just built it, but go home and learn it, and then I want you to perform it on the album instead of it being pieced together in Pro Tools. But... Yeah, it's hard to say, and you know, really, the fascinating thing that's pertinent to this episode is how Rob fits into that. He has six co-writes on this album too, so there, you know, there's moments of this album that reach in, and him saying that he has all those ideas that didn't make it is kind of sad. But I think the power of him in the in the 72 seasons era is that he basically kickstarted
1: it in these Zoom meetings. I do remember very specifically Lars and I had a conversation after we had done. The acoustic version of Blackened. After that, Lars trusted that I would try to come up with an acoustic version of Day That Never Comes. I don't know if I disappointed him or if I didn't come through, but basically I didn't deliver because I kind of threw together a, a, an original piece that had nothing to do with Day That Never Comes. That original piece was never intended to really be on the album. I think more than anything, it was intended to make a a point to him and that point was like "Fuck it let's be creative and if we're going to be creative from afar we're going to be creative from afar maybe we should think about channeling our energy from what we just did with black in 2020 and start creating new ideas and new music i brought that up to him and i could tell he was processing it i think in his mind he was just happy to make music again even if it was covers But at that time, everybody was jumping on the Zoom bandwagon, and everybody was covering something. Some of it was acoustic, some of it was electric. And we had done it. We had surprised everybody. And it was very exciting with what we had done with that. But are we going to continue to do that? In my opinion, no. Let's work on new music. And I had told them that. I said, hey, man, fuck it. Let's start writing. Let's start working on a new album. He did call me back at some point, I don't know how long after, and said, you know what, let's start working on new music. And then there was communication that started to develop with Greg Fiddleman, and uh, the ball started rolling sort of at that point. And and obviously, they took the lead on that, and here we are with a great album.
2: See, this is Rob's power. Rob's the guy going, hey, you know, I'm usually the quiet. And this is the power with the quiet guy, the calm, steady, quiet guy. He sometimes is the guy that can say, if he chooses his moment, which I think that's another like takeaway from all this is like choosing your moment, shoring up goodwill. And then when his moment came, he took a shot and he said, you know what? How about instead of me redoing the date? And I love that he'd even tell him. Lars says, well, you, I'm going to give you a big job. Like if Lars gave me that job, I would just do that job. And then I would hope that I would do that job so well, then I could introduce this new thing. Instead, Rob goes, well, you know what? I sat down to do it, but I wasn't feeling it. This new thing came out. And I just sent it to him, and, and Lars is going, "Hey, what am I missing? This doesn't sound even like a reimagined version, and Rob goes, well yeah it's it's not, and that's the power of the the quiet guy that's not always looking to shoehorn his own bullshit in is when he finally did shoot a shot, Lars paid attention
1: to it. The statement that felt good is that. He actually played on the idea that I sent. At first, I think he was caught off guard because it wasn't Day That Never Comes acoustically. It was the furthest thing from that. And he's like, what did I miss? I don't hear it. And I said, you don't hear it because it's not that. I started working on Day That Never Comes acoustically, and then I just said, fuck it, and I threw this thing together, and um, it's what I was feeling at that moment. You know? It may have not have been the greatest thing since sliced bread, but it was what I was feeling. And I thought to myself, this is what Metallica needs to do. We gotta start the creative process right there and then. He played drums on my idea and he surprised me. I get this call later at night, he's all sweaty, he's with Greg, but Lars played on this track. Miles is engineering, Ty is engineering for me. We're making things happen with our family, You know, bringing them on board as engineers. But uh, he played on it and that made me feel good because that told me that we're going to do something collectively as a band and we're going to start working towards something. So really the statement that was made to me was like, I'm down. He's not just talking. He's showing me that he wants to do this. And that was the statement I got from it. Again, it's not important about the song itself. What's important is a statement that he made to me as a fellow uh, member of the band and also, you know, that sort of idea that creatively we're going to start taking this journey on and we're going to we're going to build a new album.
2: It's cool because that, that question started where St- Stefan said, so you are always looking out for how to, he even talks about spiritually meet your friend's needs in and out of a studio situation, on and off of a deck, uh, you know, a stage situation. And Stefan says, do they ever do they ever reciprocate that to you? Cause you can't always be the guy giving, right? And that's when uh, Rob starts to say, you know, it was cool. It meant a lot to me that, that Lars played on that song. So he sends him this new creative thing and says, Hey, why don't we start being creative? And Lars actually got with Fiddleman and, and was creative with it, played on it. Now that song didn't make the album. And Rob even says, it's not even important. Like that's whatever that was, that song piece of music's not important. What's important was the messaging. Cause it, it sounds like it was important to Rob that it like he was taken seriously musically You're and right.
3: he felt heard.
2: Yeah. He felt like what he was doing was important and it was actually moving the needle. Like in any relationship, it's important that your partner or partners feels like, you know, that you feel like you have persuasive power or the power to at least incite a conversation about change. Right. So you know, I I think that if Robert doesn't do some of this stuff, I don't know if we have the album we have right now,
3: and that's totally. saying a lot Dude, about I, Rob. I I love this whole story, like these last two clips, the whole like kind of like fuck you, Lars. Let's do some new shit. We did exactly. black in twenty twenty. We don't need to do another ten year old, twenty year old song acoustically. Like that's not who we are. That's not who you are. Let's do something new. But the second part. Is that Lars, one of the biggest rock stars ever? People, he has a he has a um, a, a bad reputation of just being like rock star douchebag, but he's not. Couldn't
2: be, it couldn't be further from the truth, in my
3: opinion? Right. Oh, right. But the fact that he like he asked Rob to do something and Rob didn't do it and did something else instead, and Lars took that to heart and recorded drums on his song, and then. S- kind of like was like yeah you know what we should be we should do new stuff and that kick started the new album and i I just i love everything about that story
2: and that's lars's power lars's power has always been the vision he's always been able to see it to see a path even if it was someone else like rob kind of generating some juice here's what i love about the story the idea wasn't good enough to make the album what the idea did that he sent in is it just it gave lars a vision and then down the road you've got the album. This is Rob talking about how important Greg is to the process, how maybe it's a little different in the studio when they're all together versus when they're all kind of remote. And I love that Rob in this next clip takes time to shout out the other people involved, you know, the lesser sung heroes, the engineers, which I believe are
1: Sarah Killian, Jason Grossman, and Jim Monty. So let's check this out. He was extremely flexible. And extremely supportive you know what i mean which is great he had a very friendly demeanor and and sort of different than when he wears the producer hat here and he's kind of a bit of an enforcer he's a bit of the dad he's he's wearing a few different hats here he's got to make sure that we're on our game and that you know nobody's sort of slacking or whatever you know what i mean and he's really good at that He's somebody that is always gonna, well, for the most part, know the songs even better than us. You know, which I think is great. Especially uh, the team itself. It's not just Greg, but you know, Sarah and uh, Jason Gossman, our audio sort of engineering production team, Jim Monty. These people know what they're doing. They know how to make incredible records. They know how to make things sound amazing, but they also know the songs. Whatever we create, they know every note, every nuance. You know, sometimes we'll be like, oh, no, I played this. And they go, no, you didn't. And then they're going to, like, prove it to us. And I love that. That is really an important, you know, piece of this puzzle or the, or, or what we have here. how so they, it works. Well, so there you go. Uh,
2: I love the shout outs to the team. He talks about how they, they, they're working so hard that they know the songs better than the band does. And especially with the way that they write songs where everyone throws a bunch of riffs in a pile. Lars sort of, because he's a control freak and because he's such a visionary, untangles it all. But I like giving the shout out to the crew who make all that possible because you can't really do that without a team. And then, so this kind of dips back into what we already talked about a little bit, but Rob talking about finding his role in the band. Let's check this out.
1: What I always do with Metallica is I find my place. What do I need to do to help the situation? Am I kind of writing? Am I not writing? Am I there to just support the songs with bass only? Am I there to support my brothers away from the music itself? Is there a motivating connection? Kirk and I, during that whole time, we spent a lot of time communicating, being excited about music in general, because you got to remember, just before that, we were challenging ourselves with international duets around the world. This requires a lot of work and a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of commitment. There's no days off for Kirk and I when we were on that stadium run in Europe. So we were connected and then at the same time, you know, as a band, we're getting back together, we're doing our Zoom chats, you know, the creative process is starting, you know, we've got the the audio team coming back together. You know, we had to basically build studios, home studios so that we could make this happen. So there's a lot of effort and energy and it requires the team coming together so that we have the proper equipment and what we need as tools to create this music. When there's things that are involved on that level, you need to step up. You know, you need to find your place in the process and support it and be the best that you can. And that's what happened. This is very much a team effort. And I would just mean amongst the four musicians. I mean, Greg and Jason and and, the, and that part of the team too. It's, it's involved.
2: My friend Lee Gamilla, who was on last week, we talked about this because Lee's one of these people you never see. You know, he's a tour manager. And I know good and bad tour managers because I've fucking seen them all. And I know how good of a tour manager Lee is. And there's so many people like that, especially a band like Metallica, like one of the biggest bands in the world. So these people that help them put all this together, like they're the magic, they're the magic sauce.
3: They don't get to where they're at 40 years in without having these people behind them.
2: There's so many people that make this work. And I think that you you take you take your Freddie Mercury's and your Brian May's and your Bono's and your The Edge's, they're going to get it done, you know, because they're the ones generating it. But when they find a good team that helps them do it efficiently and do it cleanly and get their the best out of them, that is like indispensable shit right there. He reiterates that it starts with Black in 2020. Now, this is interesting because James is the one who initiated black in 2020 and this is where the sort of armchair psychologist stuff in me gets fascinating because the true sense that i get about all of this is that there is not a fear but a reverence and a quietude around james from the other guys that the only other thing i can compare it to when when studying a band as much as i've studied metallica is the way that the beatles were around john lennon you know john lennon all the oxygen went to him all the gravity went to John Lennon in that band, which is crazy when you think about how formidable those other three guys were, especially Paul McCartney and George Harrison. But there was a sense to where John was like the dad and you want dad to be happy and you'll do what you have to do to make dad happy. And James is that in Metallica. So Rob talks about, we're going to hear him, you know, more eloquently than me say, but I just want to try to dress it up for everybody is like, James initiating Black in 2020 was a signal to them that like, hey, you know, I'm I'm sober. I'm ready to be creative. I want to, you know, they say that James initiated these weekly Zoom meetings where he just wanted to catch up with everybody. And they kind of say it without saying it. That's kind of weird. That's kind of not like him. And it's him being a good leader, in my opinion, because these are guys that are going to defer to him. That's just the way the gravity you know is structured
1: in this band
2: so James getting inspired was important
1: and it did start with black in 2020 that was important you know James came through with that I know it surprised me that was a statement right there that means that he wants to make music he wants to record with us even though it was a different version of a Metallica song he still took the time to create it it was like. He went into that room. He let himself into the creative room and decided it was okay. To me, that was a sign for the future.
2: And then this is where he talks a little bit about being careful with James. Because I think what happened was James flowed out black in 2020. And it you know it was cool. It was like a good experiment. Everyone got to be creative. Everyone got to sort of get familiar with their home studios. Remember that video? It was like Kirk was in Hawaii. Rob's in L.A., Lars is in Marin County. James is in this looks like a little music room he has in Vail, Colorado. So what we learned from that was that it worked. So then maybe that died down a little bit. And that's when Lars, who I think was trying to keep the momentum, gave Rob the assignment to do the day that never comes. Okay. James got excited about reimagining an old song. Let's do it with one of our best songs from the last 20 years. And then we know the story. Rob sends in something else and it kickstarts creativity. And I think the timeline would be, at this point, Lars gets the piece of music from Rob and decides, I'm going to put something on this. So he gets connected with Greg. So now Greg's get, Greg and the audio team are getting involved. But I don't think that at this point yet, they had really pressed on James.
1: We didn't want to apply pressure on him. And him sending us Black in 2020 was a sign that said, hey, guys, I'm okay. Let's record this. Let's have some fun. Here's a little something, something. I hope you like it. Maybe you won't. Maybe you will. He sent it, and it was like, this is great. And we all jumped on board. It forced us to use our recording facilities from home and whatever in-house engineers we had on hand, whether it was our sons or you know, our daughters. or you know. I, at one point, I had my daughter filming me and my son engineering me, and we're working together as a team you know but it's the family even that helps bring some great energy into the project into our world love the dad energy
3: (laughs) yeah yeah just getting together with the family having them run around it's it's the best it's like you know i want to take amanda with me in the truck one day you know like i relate to that so much about wanting to work with your kids
2: even for me being able to just play basketball with nova or um you know she's turning into a a person who really likes to watch movies she seems to have uh, the capacity to sit and take in a movie for a couple hours you know which is kind of a dying thing and my wife will even tell you she doesn't she'd rather watch three episodes of an episodic thing that's the length of a movie than watch a movie but to even share that with my daughter like not force it on her you know not be like this is dad's thing do what dad does it's like she likes to throw basketball around. She likes to watch a movie. You know, taking her to work, obviously, super fun. And um that's the Guy Fieri kind of shit. Right. <laughs> All right. So next, Rob, the question he's asked is: when did you know what your role would be for 72 seasons? Like when were you aware that this was going to be an album about James processing some heavy shit? And how did you fit into that? He kind of goes a little tangenti. He goes a little left of center with his answer but i think it tells us a lot about
1: him so here's a clip i think we all had a pretty good idea that he would be sharing the story and the energy and all of the impactful thoughts and what was going on in his world and it would almost be impossible for that not to happen on this album that's also what makes this album great is what he's gone through and how he's had to sort of grow and, and and it's almost like a rebirth in a lot of ways you know because you've got to reconnect with your inner spirit and who you are and what you're about and now you're, you're you're sending it and you're bringing it and you're presenting it to us and eventually to the world so it's a very heavy thing for him and for me at, at that point I'm like this is going to be a powerful record you know this this is uh, going to be one of the more important records I think that metallica's ever made you create what's inside of you and what you've experienced and some of that is more powerful than others that's what 72 seasons is it has a lot of that energy in all of us every note we play is a statement that appears on this record so um, it's coming from the heart and soul of who we are as individuals and where we were in this whole process and the whole you know, the the growth of these songs and everything, you know, it, It to me, every note that's played is important on this record, you know, and people are, I believe, are going to feel that.
2: He says that he already had a sense it was going to be powerful and maybe even one of the more important records Metallica's made. What do you think about that?
3: Yeah, he's he's right. I mean, this is kind of what St. Anger should have been.
2: Mm, that's a good point.
3: Because they're both, like, the rehab albums, aren't
2: they? They're both post-rehab albums. I think 72 Seasons, the part of the stew you mix in that may make it better is, I think if you're dealing with sobriety, it's all you. It's a very self-centered, like, I'm an addict. I have to be clean. I have to lean on something outside of myself because leaning on myself is what causes problem, right? It's very, like, me shit. But the pandemic stuff was like us shit. It's like, that doesn't even anything do with you. This pandemic wasn't about you. So, you have this other aspect of it that I think broadens your pain and your suffering. I think you also throw 20 years on it of wisdom. And, and that, yeah, you're right. Like, I think that 20 years ago when he was going through his first thing, one of the reasons that it doesn't work for me is that, it, yeah, it was like he was too, he didn't have enough wisdom. He was going through a crazy thing. It was too self centered. And I think his way of dealing with that, because he's a guy, he's a guy that he has too, a warring thing within him a dichotomy and i think he has this rock star thing and i think he has this dad thing i think he has a thing that's really wants to be inclusive and metallic as a family and i think he has a thing where he's selfish and full of shit And i think part of him dealing with that was he said you know how you know the antidote to that will be for me is i'll let everybody write and letting everybody write for saint anger made it weaker and you notice that he wants people involved with seventy two seasons because he re- recognizes it's important. But who did all? Who did the writing?
3: <laughs> right.
2: Yeah. You know who who wrote well, these he, songs? It was James.
3: Yeah. Well, Saint Anger. He didn't have as much time as he's had now. You know, he's he's. when you listen to interviews with James. He sounds like a dude that's been working on himself for the last twenty years. Yeah. You know, and and it shows with this album. Right. Uh, where Saint Anger was. I don't know a year or two after the that rehab stint. So super raw,
2: just a raw nerve.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, But we were talking about Jason versus Rob and the intensity for for Rob to say like every note comes from within and has a certain impact. And it's got a Jason
2: flavor to it, doesn't it? That is,
3: yeah. he, He does have. He's got like a you know chill surfer bro intensity to him where jason was just like you know fist intensity
2: i think jason felt like i'm gonna come in and i'm gonna be the most dedicated best ever i think he had this idea about what he needed to be you know i'm not gonna squander this opportunity like i'm gonna be grateful for every moment but he also came in- into it as a writer and as an artist with something to say honestly i think this is another dynamic he also came into it as a guy that had not really done a lot professionally you know, they wanted to get basically a no-name. And thank you to Michael Alago, who was hip to Flotsam and Jetsam. Like, Flotsam and Jetsam had done some shit. But let's face it, I mean, Jason was going to Flotsam and Jetsam gigs with his cabinet in the back of his pickup truck. That is different than the first real show he did with Metallica, which was Budokan in Japan. Now, when Rob came into the band, Rob had done a lot of shit. In fact, they say that either Sharon or Ozzy, like, You know, reached out to James and was like, hey, if you treat him like you treated Jason, we're going to fucking hunt you down. You know, this is a guy that had been touring with fucking Ozzy Osbourne, like the godfather of metal. So I think that's another part of it, too, is I think Jason maybe had a lot to prove. I don't think Rob has really much to prove in terms of that he, he came in with them respecting him. And part of them being able to do that with Rob is jason kind of being the sacrificial lamb and actually speaking of that in terms of like the band understanding each other more he has this to say about gratitude
1: i do feel that there is a certain level of gratitude we're all different types of individuals in our daily lives and in our existence but together as a band what we bring what ingredients we bring to the music are valuable and important to the overall recipe obviously i feel at this time during this time there's a certain level of respect and understanding of what each individual does and in sort of a reconnection to you know like wow you know lars is great at arranging and his his groove is really great here you know what i mean it's like you're learning to understand and appreciate certain things you may have not completely like you always understand the certain things but then there's a certain level that suddenly kind of takes you and it pulls you in a better understanding that helps obviously make you know fresh music for the next round but having the understanding like with Kirk it's like wow I just spent two years creating music with Kirk on a different level I didn't know he could play like that and i've been in the band with this dude already for you know 17 years or whatever it's like i'm learning about my bandmates more and more you know
2: i like this part because you know kirk gets a lot of flack some of it kind of deserves some of it not really fair some of it's just shorthand bitchery but I do like that even Rob is saying, and this is worth paying attention because Rob is himself a very formidable musician. Rob's saying, you know, there are things I learned about Kirk in our doodles and the exploration of those doodles that I didn't even know he was capable of. And I've been in a band with him for 17 years, you know, like that's a powerful revelation, especially when you, cause people, myself included, we look at 72 seasons and like, we're like, how are they still doing it this well, this long? It's kind of things like that, you know, it's, it's, Constantly sort of having new waves of discovery about the people you're in a relationship with. It, that's even like a marriage where you have to kind of almost every 10 years fall in love with this person again.
3: Yeah, it's interesting too that like I I, it, it, I didn't realize how much went into those doodles and how much they had to work to, to get those off every night.
2: Yeah, he talks about how there's no days off for them because they got to find the right song. They got to figure out a way to do it with just a bass player and a guitar player. Neither of them very strong singers, but very often they would sing parts of it, at least like a chorus to try to get the crowd involved. And, you know, they could have easily not done that and not put themselves out there because, you know, the reviews were mixed about that because they would sometimes really pull it off. Sometimes it would be weird, you know. But what I like about that is that they were exploring, they were looking for juice they weren't just looking to be rich, entitled guys that could go out and play their 17 coolest metal songs of all time. They're like, how can we keep it interesting and be creative? And they always want to get better. And that's a hallmark of this band that I think is an important key into why they
1: endure. The other thing, too, is, is growing and priding ourselves on trying to get better, trying to get our tempos down, trying to um, you know challenge ourselves a bit more musically and that lends itself to where we're going in the future one of the things is there's no shortage of ideas with this band i promise you that i mean kirk's already sending in 300 ideas i'll be honest with you i had riffs galore they never even got listened to and that's okay because we had enough riffs but i'm just saying that there is no shortage of music inspiration um the fact that we really do try to challenge ourselves and become better players as a unit live and if you listen to some of the recordings from a few years back and where we're at now it's interesting because i feel like uh, we've grown as a band and uh, i was very proud of the 40th anniversary shows because i noticed that some of that stuff we probably played better than we've ever played it that's pretty cool you know considering how long we've been together and how long the band's been together in the long haul as well it's a it's a pretty cool statement that was made that weekend for metallica as a band moving forward i love that he singled out the 40th
2: anniversary shows and he's saying look we're playing some of these songs better than we've ever played them i don't know if i'm enough of a student of the bootlegs or of like keeping up with that to know i do know that they're playing like some of the songs like more at tempo they're not rushing as much
3: lars seems a lot better the last few years right than the previous maybe 10 years and i'm i don't i'm not a huge student of bootlegs but from the from the little that i do know about it he sounds like he's gotten a lot better
2: yeah i think it's just it's i mean they are a band that doesn't have to keep getting better which sounds easy to say, like I'm not trying to give anyone a pass, but I mean, Jesus, there is a certain level you get to where you really don't have to keep trying to be better and people will forgive you. I mean, we could probably, if we wanted to waste time, find 10 of those bands, but the great ones don't do that. You know, U2 didn't do it. Metallica's not doing it. You know, Paul McCartney's not doing it. The great ones can't not do it.
3: Well, and I think something great about Rob is And I've seen this over the years. It's like, he is like, because he's not tense. And like you said earlier, he's, he's choosing his moments. He pushes them and he has, he has pushed them to do like some of the older material that they don't ever do because, uh, (laughs) I'm not saying he's a true, but he is a fan of early Metallica. You know what I mean? and they I think he gotta,
2: shares that with Jason. I think Jason was also like that. Yeah,
3: exactly. Exactly. But I think um maybe Rob has a better uh understanding of when to push these guys. And 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 unfortunately, I they the band they respect Rob more than they did with Jason.
2: That's what I was going to say. I think that it you know for reasons we've already kind of described a little bit in this conversation and I think for reasons that have been, you know, drawn out throughout this podcast and for right and wrong reasons yeah they didn't respect him as much so even though he wrote blackened i mean it's it, them not jason not getting the respect is a comment of, you know it's more of a critique of the other three guys than jason yeah
3: you know totally.
2: his yeah. intensity was an asset they didn't know how to deal with it jason didn't know how to harness it they were all young they were all young dude jason came in and did justice which is when the rocket really started with the one video and then black album. They never even, they never even matched what that was. And that was Jason. No, no one will probably ever do again what they did from 91 to 94. And that was Jason, you know, and Jason even has songwriting credits on that. So like Jason made his mark, but I think you're right for, for right and wrong reasons. They didn't respect him as much. So Rob comes in and goes, Hey, you guys want to play, you know, we should play Dyer's Eve sometime they played it you know and I can't imagine Jason never tried to weasel that in because Jason loved the old thrash shit you know it's pretty telling on the 30th anniversary shows that when Jason would do his couple of songs a night he chose a lot you know he chose fight fire with fire you know he chose big thrashers damage ink there were songs he wasn't even a part of you know whiplash Well, that's, that was like the song he always sang so How about intense exactly totally i mean it's hard to blame him for being so intense metallica probably made him that way for these damn yeah. songs
3: <laughs> yeah
2: here's rob talking about strengths and weaknesses this is piggybacking a bit on both getting better no shortage of ideas you know he says kirk's already turned in 300 ideas he of course says that he's turned in riffs that he didn't think got listened to which he says is cool they had their riffs and that's the thing it's like dude james hetfield's in your band that you know it's like George Harrison turning in songs to fucking Paul McCartney and John Lennon. It's like, you're probably turning in some of the best songs if you weren't in a band with the best songwriters of all time. Because Kirk's responsible for Inner Sandman, which to me is the most recognizable metal riff ever. And that's cool. Like that's he's got that to put hang on his, you know, hang his hat on. But you're also still in a band with James and Lars. And James has written more iconic riffs than anyone, other than maybe Tony Iomi. So, but here's where I'm talking about strengths and weaknesses. This is fascinating.
1: There is trust, but there's also respect. And sometimes, and this happens in any band, you know, you get comfortable with each other. You know, none of us are perfect. You know, we have our our moods. Again, something in your personal life can affect your performance when you're trying to create or you're trying to rehearse or whatever. And you bring that onto the floor. We're all guilty of that each member of Metallica will tell you that we're all guilty of that but when that happens there's respect we never lose our cool there are no fights here anymore we understand what we need to do as brothers in the family but we also a team members as well but we also know what we need to do for the music and I believe that we all know our strengths, and I also believe we know our weaknesses. When I joined Metallica, I never sang in my whole life. So the fact that I can now support a a backup vocal is pretty cool, you know? I actually, for the first time in my life, I get to sing on a Metallica record, you know, and support James. I'm very proud of that. So we're getting better, you know? We're we're, uh, learning, and we're still growing in this band right now and the respect level is much higher. You know, Lars oftentimes he calls me, sometimes he's checking in or wants, you know, my opinion on something. You know, same thing with with Kirk. And I love that. I love that idea that there's trust and there's actually respect.
2: Here's the thing that, that I always think about this when they talk about this is talking about like I am saying on a metallic record, which I think is awesome. And we're about to hear a lot about You Must Burn, which is, you know, I guess that's the heavy, the You Want Heavy Baby song. Um, Rob sang on Dream No More. He sings on the wake, you know, part of the outro. I guess they're just not considering that really singing because it's like a gang vocal. But the, like, um, the metal police in me is like, but you did sing on a record, Robert.
3: I was kind of confused by that, too, when he said that. Because of Dream No More? Yeah, because I'm like, wait, didn't he... Hasn't he sang backup vocals before this album?
2: Well, not a lot on albums, but like he's he sings he sings that whole line the the lines the sort of echo lines and of spit off the bone live, and he does the language of the mad stuff and Harvey like live. But he did sing but like gang vocals at the end of Dream No More, and you can see it in the making of that song. But anyway, I think it's cool that he's talking about he's still becoming a better musician still being challenged i love all that stuff so that of course leads to him talking about you must burn which you know the fact that Stefan focused on this and that rob speaks about it obviously with so much fondness leads me to believe this is actually like a creative idea that meant a lot to him and he talks about how he says it's similar to suicide and redemption where the song was born in the tuning room and he talks about getting on this what he calls the magic carpet with james and you it's moments like this and i I want everyone to pay attention to how he talks about coming up with this stuff with james where you can get a real sense of how james is really the engine and the power and it doesn't take anything away from these three dudes who i don't know if james could do it by himself but he's the engine and the power just listen to the way that uh robert talks about how his contributions to you must burn came about
1: we're taking an idea you know that birthed itself in the tuning room oftentimes and uh we start to cultivate it how do we cultivate it we jam so for the middle section of you must burn that was really centered around a jam A kind of a a very moody it's moody but it's kind of sexy you know what I mean there's like a a danger to it James and I just started kind of grooving on it it was just the two of us the working title was uh, ACL I don't know maybe we were in Austin you know what I mean but that was a special moment for me because whenever I can find sort of that magic carpet with James it's really a lot of fun you know we just kind of sink in it's like we're riding this wave together Suicide and Redemption it was the same kind of thing we were in I think it might have been South Africa and started playing the pulsating bass line and then He started to hit these power chords kind of counterpoint and these tension chords stuff like that so it's always fun when you find that moment where something starts to work and you do see a future for it you know you can feel like this is going to eventually be something five years from now three years from now that kind of a thing that was the vibe I got from that song and I know when Lars heard it he had said oh we found a really cool riff it made me happy. I I like that. I like that. Uh it has its place. It's uh, um very specific to a certain type of energy and flow and I believe that it you know, it has an important place on the album. It it resonates, let's say.
2: Yeah, it's cool. He's proud of that. You know, he had an idea that got through and became, you know, what's gonna probably be some people's favorite Metallica song. Imagine that. Yeah,
3: it's it's um you can hear the joy kinda in his voice when he's talking about you know, just jamming with, with James and it turned into something really cool.
2: Yeah. Because how many times is he, you know, he, he probably jams to James a lot, but you never know. Like, is that going to become the next creeping death? Is that going to become the next holier than thou or, you know, because it's really going to come down to James and, and it, I, you know, I want to give credit to Lars. I kind of, you know, I've talked a lot about Lars, not in a bad way, but it's like Lars is, is one of the most unique. Credited songwriters, I think, in like Western music history because he's not writing the songs, but he is the one that does like go through it all and piece it all together. And I think James could do it without him. I just think James generates so much shit, and James is smart enough to know what Lars's strengths are that he just let you know. It's like look, we obviously have a lot of success when Lars does that. So I'll just keep churning these out. Lars can kind of put it together. I'll have final say, I'll eventually write the song over at the top of it. You know, the melody, the lyric, what we come to know is the songs. All that's very interesting. I'm proud of Rob, you know, the singing thing, him getting his riffs in there. He also talks about Greg trusting him when he got the call to do the vocals. We're kind of running out of time here a little bit, so I'm going to blow through some of this. They, of course, talk about Inamorata. Inamorata has become just sort of a very, I don't know, spiritually interesting part of the record. There is the. There's one of the only dynamic parts of the record is when it shoots down to that bass. And they talk about that bass line and how it was James's idea. Of course, it was James's idea. He wanted it to suck down to like a Sabbathy thing, create a moment. Rob talks about he closed his eyes and of course, every note mattered. And I think that comes through on the album. Um, I think the part where um, that vocal part that ramps up in that slow part of Inamorata is like definitely a highlight of the whole album. Stefan asked, do the members of Metallica pat themselves on the back when they know they've hit a home run, which I love that question. I love the, And the answer is, as I said the answer is a little sad, isn't it?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I love the question. Cause they don't, they don't Spoiler alert. It's kind of like, man, you, he said they will eventually will, will have that.
2: I think that they need maybe a little more time to make sure that, you know, you're so close to it. Um, And he does say that compliments, at least on like compliments about what happens on stage are more common now. I think maybe they're like less afraid to tell each other like, hey, you're great. You kick ass, you know. Rob does say that he does think that this album is like another level from Hardwired, which I think is fascinating to say. He says, that you know, you can hear more of the collaboration in the music, which is true. I mean, Rob and Kirk both have co-writes. I do think Hardwired was mainly a, a Lars james thing which might explain why some of the songs are better i mean i don't know you know like i don't know if there's a moth in the flame on 72 seasons i don't think there's not a spit out the bone there's not a halo on fire there's not a dream no more
3: i hate like ranking these albums but i think i do like hardwired more because the songs are very different to me from each other where 72 seasons a lot of them are just they're they sound very similar. It's just straightforward, you know, rock or thrash, whatever you want to call it. Where hardwires has hardwired has more. Uh, just the songs are different.
2: Yeah, you've got your you've got your hardwired, your Atlas Rise, your Spit Off the Bone. Those are kind of the big thrashy ones. But then you got just the undeniable banger and Moth. You've got your really slow... I think I think Dream No More is like a combination between Memory Remains and True. You've got your Halo and Fire, which touches on a little bit of Day That Never Comes, a little bit of Fade to Black and Sanitarium. You've got your Am I Savages and Here Comes Revenge and Mankinds that flirt with load-reload. Now that we're dead, definitely a load-reload thing. Um, confusion also. So I agree with you. I think 72 Seasons is like more cohesive in a way. But it's a little just more like leveled like i don't know if there's a song on 70 seasons i don't like but there's not anything on 70 seasons well maybe the title track and then a Marata that i like as much as moth but they're grown on me slower you know
3: this album definitely has has grown on me i was not it's I, a growing. Mean, obviously i never hated it but with the first like week of listening to it i was like oh this is all right but now in the last few months it's really gotten a lot better but i still don't like if darkness had a song i i just can't get into that song
2: pretty cool song (laughs) that's my only counter argument well it's pretty cool though (laughs) that that chorus is something they haven't done before there's like new that's new territory i think it's very influenced by james's uh i think james listens to ghost i think you can hear ghost in that chorus it is one of the one of the six that they're playing live, which I've you know, I guess it was one of the singles. I do hope they do in a Murata Live. I would like to see the um you know, there's a couple of like more pop punk sounding songs like Chasing Light and Too Far Gone that I'd like to see live. I think those would be easy to slide in. Yeah,
3: that's you know, uh, uh Tom Que mentioned something about pop punk influencer sounding. I don't hear it.
2: Too far gone too far gone I for don't sure hear it
3: at all. But
2: that's wild. I
3: don't know. I, I it's, it just it, that that sentiment blows my mind. I just don't hear I don't hear that in this album at all. But,
2: Have you listened to Too Far Gone or Chasing Light after hearing it compared to that, and like tried to hear it through that no, prism?
3: No, I need to do that,
2: dude. Well, I'll tell you. Well, it's more Too Far Gone than Chasing Light. Too Far Gone yeah. sounds like a punched-up Green Day song to me.
3: Mm-hmm. Am I too far gone?
2: That's exactly what Green Day sounds like. Yeah. Well, look, let's let the babies go. Thank you for hanging out with me, breaking down the Rob Trujillo stuff. You're Metal Up Your Podcast family, for sure. It's good to have you back here. Yeah,
3: thank you for having me.
2: To all you people out there in Metal Up Your Podcast land, we love you. We appreciate you. Write us in. Metal Up Your Podcast show at gmail.com. Let us know what you think about Rob. All right, everyone go home. Take care of yourself. Take care of your families. Watch a little more Triple D, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, and we will catch you on the flippity-floppity. Peace. (laughs)
3: our advisor or what would you say then I would say delete that